part of the, of the conversation, I want you to think for a few minutes about uh, the not-so-scary part. Uh, think for a moment about a space or a place in your life where you felt tremendous peace and comfort and, and, and an absence of fear. If I think back over my life, I would think back to a time probably when I was, would have been in kindergarten. I didn't attend kindergarten, but back, that's part of the problem. But, but back at that time in my life, I happened to have a, live on a property where our house uh, shared a yard with my grandparents' house. And I vividly remember uh, in my childhood, uh, one of my favorite memories was uh, going out with my grandfather, and he had a number of fruit trees in his yard, uh, a pear tree, an apple tree, and a peach tree. Remember all of those, and uh, he would uh, go out, and when the, the fruit was ripe, pick a piece of fruit, and then we'd sit down in an old, uh, uh, kind of an old bench he had out there, and uh, I'd sit on his lap, and he'd peel the fruit, and then I'd, I'd eat it from his hands. And uh, I remember that just as being so secure, uh, so right, uh, so peaceful, uh, no fear whatsoever in that, and just admiration. A lot of reasons why, right? My grandpa wasn't that tall, but he was a lot taller than I was at five years old. So he could reach things I couldn't reach. Uh, he was allowed to have a knife. I was not allowed to touch a knife. And he could do things with that I couldn't do. And, and not only that, in his presence, when I was sitting on his knee, his arms were around me, and it was just him and I, there were no other concerns in the world. Nothing else that I was concerned about. I was safe in his arms. That's a space I look back on and I think, Wow. In life, we don't have any spaces like that. And the older we get, the fewer of them we have. Because our cares and our concerns find a way into almost every space we're in. And it's hard to set them aside. In fact, it's been said that we currently live in an age of anxiety. Uh, this is a moment where the, the fact that our society has changed so rapidly, the advances in technology, the pace at which uh, life happens, the pressures uh, that we face are maybe unprecedented in human history. But there's never been a time that calls for so much of, uh, constant movement and, and adjustment to things that are happening in our world. The technological complexity leaves people feeling plagued by anxiety and feeling overwhelmed. And into that, of course, comes fear. But the Bible seems to call us towards something different, doesn't it? We, we often have been called to not worry. Consider some of the things the Bible says about that, right? Uh, we, we're reminded by the Apostle Paul's words in his Philippian letter, where he writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Philippians 4, 6. Or Peter, who was also one of the apostles, said, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you, 1 Peter 5, 7. So how do Christians do it? How do we live in this world of anxiety and yet somehow cast off that anxiety, get rid of it, uh, put it somewhere else? Well, if we're going to really understand this concept, let's acknowledge two things the Bible says about concern and anxiety that are, that are both true and important for us to understand. Here's the first one. Not all anxiety, not all fear, not all concern is bad. Not all of it is unwarranted. Uh, in fact, just the opposite. 
Even the Apostle Paul, who wasn't afraid for his physical concern, remember he once shook a viper off of his hand in a fire, he wasn't so worried about himself, his fears and concerns weren't for himself, but his concerns for others were immense. In fact, he even writes as much, and and we hear him say uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure, he says, of my concern for all the churches. Uh, It seems that Paul was affirming the fact that it's okay to be realistic. It's okay to acknowledge that that there are real concerns out there that we should be aware of and that we should have some concern about. Uh, There are real challenges. There are real dangers. And to ignore them would be foolish. Now, you know this is true, right? Uh, You you know this inherently that it's true uh, that there are some things we should be concerned about. If they were to issue a tornado warning and you hear the siren going and you walk outside and you see a black cloud that's just spinning and heading towards your house, you have a right to be concerned. In fact, if you're not concerned, there's probably something wrong with you. By all means, go down to the basement or get to an interior room. Do something. Take action. Because if you don't, the results could be catastrophic. So not all fear or concern or anxiety is a bad thing. But on the flip side, we're very aware that fear can become paralyzing. It can cause us to become immobile, ineffective, ineffective, and make us unproductive. That second kind of fear is destructive. It's damaging. I think it's that second kind of fear that Jesus is talking about when he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount to the topic of fear and to worry. You know these words from Matthew 6, verse 25 and following. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And this next phrase is a good one. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, seek first his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In the context of Christ's words, we can see that our reaction to life's challenges reveal a lot about what we think of God and what we think of ourselves. They reveal a lot about our ability to trust or not to trust. In fact, it really reveals the answer to this question. Who is God in your life? Is God someone, something that you believe has constancy and is, is constantly with you, or is God something you find elusive, disconnected, unable to connect with? 
how we deal with these burdens we carry says a lot about our level of trust in God. Think about this. If God is God of our life, then we turn to him when we need help. And when we have a burden, if God is the God of our life, we shift the burden from our life and from our hands into his hands, from our shoulders onto his shoulders. If God is God in our life, we let him help carry the burden, carry the concern. But the opposite is also true. If we want to be the God of our life, if we want to be the ones who are in charge, calling all the shots, making all the decisions, then we also must be the one to carry the burdens in our own hands and on our old shoulders. Understanding that it's not surprising that in a world where increasingly people say, I, I have no relationship with God, I, I have no affiliation with the church. It shouldn't surprise us that in a world like that, anxiety is going off the charts. If there's no God to give problems off to and have me carry my burdens, then I have to carry them, and the, the burdens are greater than we can carry. So in a world of increased godlessness, we find a world that is struggling under the weight of its burdens and anxiety. Of course, there's a challenge, even for Christians, right? The challenge comes from uncertainty. Trusting God is never an easy thing to do, especially when we don't get an instant relief to the circumstance, when it's something that we have to deal with for a while. The truth is, it's a lot easier to say, I'm not going to worry, than it is to really be worry-free. So we find ourselves caught in varying degrees of, an, of anxiety across a continuum from the healthy and appropriate trust in God to the unhealthy fear where I don't believe God's going to care enough to do anything about the circumstance. I don't know where you are on that continuum right now in your circumstance, but let me pause for a second and take you to a space not far from here in a video I saw uh, post on my phone over the summer. Some of you probably saw the same one. It was from Brown County State Park. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone to the park. We've grown up in this area. I, I've, I love the park. I've gone on many walks there and, and, and enjoyed a lot of great outings there with my wife, with my kids, with my family, with my friends. We really like the park. And I've hiked those trails back around the lakes and back in the woods many times. But I got this video, did you see it last summer, of a huge rattlesnake going across the trail. I mean, it was big. And I don't know if you know this, I hate snakes. Some of you know better than others. I hate snakes, right? Scott, yeah. I once put on a pair of waders when a snake got in the church, and Scott and I went with a, a, a shovel into the church bathroom, and before we were done, I had big chunks out of the tile killing that snake. <laughs> I hate snakes. If you're like me and you don't like snakes, that picture, it kind of made you feel a little, ooh, I don't like that. You know, I don't want to be around that. Well, a healthy fear says what? A healthy fear says, I'm still going to go to the park. And I'm going to still assume that when I go to the park, that, you know, even though I know there's a, they now know there are monster rattlesnakes there. That's what I call them, right? There's these, even though I know that's true, it's not going to keep me from going to the park, but I promise you this, my eyes are going to be open a lot more. I'm going to watch where I step, be aware of what I'm hearing when I'm out in the woods. And if something starts to slither, you can count on me taking about 20 steps back. 
I won't be the guy running up there with my camera to take pictures. I'll be the guy finding a big club somewhere, right? That'll be me. But it doesn't stop me from going. But there are others who, when they face a problem, they see something like that, an irrational fear says, that's it, I'm done. I'm never going back towards that place again. You know, I'm going to shudder when I drive by the front-covered bridge of the park. I don't want to be there. Well, that's an irrational kind of fear. Now, I make that, and I know this is an overstatement, but, but sometimes in our life, we go to those irrational kinds of places. And our fear takes us to a space that, that really is unhealthy and causes a lot of damage. Because a certain person who maybe has hurt us in our life, we decide, well, I'll, I'll never have another close relationship. I'll never have a friend like that again. We allow our fear to, to do things that damage our ability to be the full person God created us to be. Because that's what fear does. God has a remedy for fear. And his remedy for fear is love. God says that love is what drives out fear. And so God is constantly wanting to show us that I love you, I care about you, and, and you can trust me. Jesus was trying to communicate that with his disciples during those three years he was with them. It was a tough three years. When we read the Gospels, we see these interactions between Jesus and the disciples. And, and there are really humorous moments, and there are some real intimate moments that happen while they're together. And, and, and yet there's also this real reality in, in this thing that they come to have a relationship where they know that there's something special about Jesus. They trust that. They have wavering moments of doubt and fear. That's very clear. And then there are these moments where, um, where God seemed to use Jesus and the disciples to teach them something, but maybe also to teach us something. And one of the things that, that happens, I think you see happen in their relationship, is that as time goes on, opportunities begin to come before the disciples. And as the opportunities happen, uh, like as an example, he sends them out two by two on an occasion, and they do great things. He gives them a chance to grow in their faith and to face and overcome some of their fears. Another occasion happened that was totally optional. It was a moment where they didn't have to participate. In fact, only one of them did participate in this activity, but, but they had an opportunity to grow in their faith, especially Peter, who would have a great influence over the church in the future. He had an opportunity to participate in this object lesson, this moment that was really incredible. You probably already have guessed, we're going to talk for a few minutes the remainder of our time about the story of Peter walking on the water with Jesus. If you have your Bibles, let's go back to, to that passage in Matthew chapter 14. And on your device or on the screen, let's follow along starting in verse 22 of Matthew 14. And let's consider the roles of faith and fear and belief and doubt as they play out in this real life circumstance. And let's look at the opportunity God places before Peter through Jesus. We read this word first in chapter 14, verse 22. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Now, before we go to that, let's talk about what the immediately is in this chapter. First, uh, immediately after he has just fed the 5,000, and he has uh, had to put down a little bit of a, a challenge because they are so impressed with him giving them fish and loaves, they want to make Jesus their king on the spot. 
We don't know for certain how much the disciples played into where the crowd was, but I think it's reasonable for us to at least imagine that maybe the disciples even got caught up in that. And that there was a little bit in them of like, yeah, Jesus, you should just become the king. Let's go. This is good. You become the new king. We're with you. And I think as we open this part of the chapter, there's a little bit of Jesus that might have been a little frustrated with them. Uh, it's kind of like what Jesus said later on to Peter. Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. You have some other agenda. That's not my agenda. And there may have been some frustration when Jesus tells them, hey, you guys get in the boat. Uh, get on out of here. He may have had some frustration with the disciples. Uh, not only that, it had been a frustrating day before the feeding ever happened. This day had begun with the news that John the Baptist was dead. And think about this for a moment. Jesus had probably known the moment, the instant that he died. But this was his cousin. This was someone he, he, he had admired. Uh, he had a, a unique relationship with John, but uh, it was very clear that, that Jesus held John in great esteem. And John the Baptist had, of course, baptized him, had been there at the start of his ministry. He was his family, and he had just died at the hands of the civil authorities. And that made it very real to Jesus what his real mission was. He was going to die. Talk about a sobering moment. This day, that day, had started with that at the forefront of his mind. So uh, Jesus sends them away, his disciples. He sends away the crowd, and he seeks some time with God, some solitude. So it says then, after he had dismissed them, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there, that is, on the mountain by the sea alone. And the boat, that is the one with the disciples, was already a considerable distance from land. And it was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So a storm, a squall had come up on the lake, and the disciples are out in the boat. Shortly before dawn, probably sometimes between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning, Jesus goes out to them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. And they go all shaggy and scooby here, right? It's a ghost. What are we going to do? They're terrified, right? This is a scary thing. That's the first thing they think about is, it's got to be a ghost. <laughs> They're afraid. We'd probably have been afraid too. So they cry out in fear. They cry out in fear. Now, Jesus says something that's profound. We read in the Bible, sometimes we hear this idea about gather your strength. That has the idea of looking within. We talked about that a little bit last week, finding the strength that's within us. But this construction, when Jesus says it, it's very interesting because the object of the strength is not the disciples, but it's him. Listen to Jesus' words here, right? He says, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. The literal construction says, take courage from me. Take my courage and put it into you. I mean, picture the scene. Here's Jesus walking on the water unafraid. And why would he be? 
From the very beginning of time, there has been an example of the Spirit of God hovering over the deep. He has no fear of the water. He is the master of the elements of creation. He has no concerns about those things. And so here is Jesus saying to them, look, I'm not afraid of this storm. I'm not afraid of these waves. I'm not afraid of the depth of the sea. And you shouldn't be either. Take courage from me because I am with you. I'm here. Take my courage. It's the same kind of construction we see when we read the words, take my yoke upon you and the burden will be easy. Jesus is saying, I'm offering you something. I'm offering you courage over fear. Take it. And that could be the sermon for some of us today. I don't know the circumstance or the storm that you're in, but hear those words of Jesus for you. Him saying to you, take my courage, take my strength into your circumstance. Don't be afraid. I'm here. I'm present. Now here's that moment where we get to see Peter's opportunity for growth. And it's a remarkable moment. Peter has been impetuous before. His ability to respond quickly to Jesus is quite remarkable. That whole thing of when Jesus gives him the great catch of fish at the beginning of his ministry, and he comes up on the shore, you realize how huge that is? When Jesus says, hey, Peter, follow me. Become a fisher of men. And the Bible says Peter just walks away from the fishing boat. That's an incredible thing. I mean, most of us would be like, yeah, I'll put you on my calendar. I'll see you in four or five weeks. Let me deal with these business transactions and get my old this. Not Peter. I mean, he just instantly was like, yeah, clearly you're the guy. I'm with you. Let's go. I mean, we admire that about him, even though that's a pretty radical kind of response. But that was Peter. He was of, uh, uh, despite his flaws, he was certainly a passionate follower of Jesus. Well, here we go. He has a chance to grow in his faith. And it is a bona fide opportunity. And you know the story. Here's what happens, right? Uh, Jesus is there with them. He says, don't be afraid. And Peter says, well, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. That's probably not what I would have said. Jesus, get in the boat with us. <laughs> what are you hanging out there? But that wasn't Peter. He's like, yeah. All right, you said take my strength from you and don't be afraid. Okay, if it's you, then call me out there with you. Tell me it's okay for me to go out and be beside you on the water. Tell me it's okay for me to do that. And Jesus says, it's okay. Come on. Let's do it. Now this, it really was an incredible moment. And the boat is rocking, the waves and wind are blowing, but in the beginning of this story, Peter is locked on Jesus. And I just want you to know that when we are locked on to Jesus with our, with our vision, with our priorities, with our heart, with our mind, with all of our soul and our strength, we can do incredible things. So Peter is locked in. He's focused. And it tells us Peter got down out of the boat. Now that in itself was, was really unique because getting out of the boat in the water is not something you did very often. I mean, Peter did jump in a couple of times in the stories we have, but, but you don't usually like step out onto the water like you're stepping out onto the shore. Why? Because you know you're going to sink. But for some reason in this moment when he steps out, He's looking at Jesus and he feels his foot hit the water and it is just as firm as if he was standing on a rock. 
His foot's down there, and can you picture him? The other leg comes off over the boat's edge. He's still had a hand on the boat. There's Jesus. And I think in this part of the story, Jesus is probably smiling pretty big. He's got to be pretty pleased with Peter. Like, this is a big step. And then there's that moment that had to be incredible where Peter lets go of the boat. And he's just standing on the water. And the other 11 are dumbfounded, like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on here? This is, this is pretty cool. So Peter is standing there. He's coming towards Jesus. It says that he walked, so we have to envision he begins to take steps across the water. And man, he's, he sees Jesus. I mean, I just imagine their eyes are contacting each other, and, and he's looking them in the eye, just like a parent when your kid's taking those first few steps. Remember, you've seen this, you've done this. Come on, walk to Grandpa. You got this. And your arms are out there because you like, expect them that they probably will fall, right? You get that that's part of learning to walk. But you're there, your arms are reaching out, and, and this is a new thing, and you're really proud of them for every step they successfully make it. And I think that was probably the heart of Jesus, and I think that's how he looks at us when we take some new steps for him. I think he's like, all right, come on, we got this. We're gonna do this, I'm here for you. If you fall down, don't worry, I'll be here. And as long as Peter is in the moment and he's really trusting and believing and following and seeing Jesus, he is doing incredible stuff. And a lot of us could look at times in our life where the same thing happened to us. We took Jesus at his word. We took a step of faith. When we were really locked in on him, we were doing incredible things. And we were taking some incredible steps. But just like Peter, for whatever reason, the analytical part of our mind starts to say, wait a minute, what am I doing? <laughs> this stuff's not possible. <laughs> I don't have the ability to do this. This is too much for me. People can't do this. And fear and doubt start to flood our mind. For Peter, it says, Peter looked and he saw the wind and he saw the waves and he was afraid. And as soon as fear entered his circumstance, Peter got a horrible, sinking feeling that some of us can relate to. And he began to sink. But he had enough time to get these words out before his head was going to go into the water. Jesus, save me! Save me! Now, I don't know where you are in your life. I know there are some in this room who've never yet given them their lives to Jesus. Friends, I want you to hear this. Jesus says, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you say those words, Jesus, save me, he has a hand that is quick to reach out and take hold of us. And before Peter's head went under the water, Peter felt it. The outstretched hand of Jesus grabbing his. That had to be a pretty great moment for Peter. <laughs> Maybe not so exciting for Jesus, but a great moment for Peter. Okay, he's got me. I'm still in the water, and now he's dragging me back to the boat like a flopping fish, but he's got me. I'm safe. 
Now, when they get back to the boat, Jesus speaks to Peter. The contraction here is, you have little faith, and it implies, basically implies a childlike kind of faith, an immature kind of faith. And so his question here isn't so much one of chastisement, but it's one of just, okay, your faith's going to have to grow. It's still too small. Don't let that small faith get in the way, because see what you could have done. Think of how the story would have been different if Peter had made it to Jesus without sinking. I mean, it would have changed the narrative in a lot of ways. And it could have happened that way. But something got in the way. Doubt. Doubt. You know, the interesting part of the story is it was when he doubted himself, I think, more than he doubted Jesus. If he doubted Jesus, he wouldn't ask him to help save him. He wouldn't have believed he had the power to do that. But he came to doubt himself. He doubted what Jesus could do through him. And we do that sometimes. We are prone to underestimating the good things that God can do through us, through Christ. And Jesus was disappointed in that. Peter, together we're going to do great things. Believe it. Don't doubt. Let your faith be increased so that your faith is greater than your fears. Several years ago, Max Licata wrote a book called When Christ Comes. It's a, it's a really good book. If you've not read it, you should read it. It talks about some of the promises of God and some of the things that, that he has promised for us. In that, that book, toward the end of the book, there's a story about the love of a father and a son and the nature of a relationship between a father and his children. It's a story about the 1989 Armenian earthquake. The earthquake lasted for four minutes, and estimates are that in four minutes, 30,000 people died as buildings collapsed across Armenia. He writes the true story of a father whose son was at an elementary school, and the, the building collapsed on the children. His father immediately made his way as fast as he could through the community to the school that now does lay as a heap of rubble. And he joined the rescue efforts that were going on there. And initially, they rescued a lot of children, but he hadn't found his son. So he continued the work of digging through the rubble, of, of trying to get to his child. And uh, the story is he, he had a lot of people helping him for the first 12 hours. By 24 hours, most people had already began to give up hope they'd find anyone else alive. But his father was, would not relent his search. He kept calling out for his son, Armand, Armand, Armand. And every time he would lift another chunk of rubble and his fingers would be more cut, more bruised than before, his, his hope that his child would be saved and rescued did not waver. By the 36-hour mark, he alone was standing over that pile of rubble, still looking for his child. And it was in that 36th hour that he pulled away a chunk of twisted metal and rebar and concrete to see a small void, and immediately thrust his arm in and began to feel around to see if he could feel anyone there, and he shouted out the words, Armand, Armand. And he said, this incredible moment, a hand reached back and grabbed his hand. And the hand said, 
the voice from the void said, Dad, he'd found his son. Not only did he find his son, but there were a small number of students that were in that same void with the boy. And as he came out, he said to, to his father, he said, Dad, I knew that you would come. He said, I told him, I said, if my dad's alive, he's going to come and he'll find us. And I told him, if my dad finds me, he's going to find you. So don't lose hope. And Armand and his father were reunited that day. And several other children were reunited because there was a father who was unrelenting in his passion for his child. But do you realize we have a heavenly father who is unrelenting in his love and his passion for you? And he seeks us. He desires a relationship with us. He loves us. And his love is great enough to overcome our fears and our anxiety and to push them away. And just like the father of Ramon, he reaches his hands out to us today in the middle of our collapse, in the middle of our difficulty, in the middle of our season of storm, our struggle, and he gropes in that. He wants us to do what? He wants us to reach out to him as he is reaching out to us. And just as Peter took hold of the hand of Jesus this morning, he invites us to take, care, to, to take hold of his hand in the midst of our circumstance. He cares for us. He cares for you. So cast your cares on him, knowing that he cares and loves you. If you're here this morning and you're carrying a burden, I, I don't want you to carry it out of here. I want you to lay it down. If you desire for someone to pray with you, by all means, uh, you can stay where you are, raise a hand, and, and I'll come and pray with you. We'll have uh, Some of our Christians will see you. They will pray with you today, right where you are. Come forward if you need prayer, and the elders and I will be glad to come alongside you and help you carry the burden. Don't let fear keep you from a relationship with God. Don't let fear keep you from what God has for you. Some people are afraid, well, Marty, that's a really nice sermon, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what we're facing, and you're right, I don't, but God does. And the same hand that could catch Peter can still catch you. And if you're here today, you are not beyond the grace of God and the grip of God. If you reach out to him, you'll feel his hand, and you'll feel his presence. His words to you this morning are, whosoever will may come. So I encourage you, lay down your burdens at the cross. Come to Jesus today as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.